pleasure to be here. Um, I'm sure everyone in this audience have some strong ideas about what the state should do or what the state should not do. And I will try to present here a theory of reform, how to really promote classical liberal ideas. So it's a book that I've written about statecraft and liberal reforms in advanced democracies. And that includes countries like Sweden and Australia that I will talk about, but also the US and most of the Western world. And um, I've been thinking about this puzzle, how to promote reform, liberal reforms in the European sense, for a fairly long time. So I've written books about why governments tend to overexpand, why the size of government becomes too big, how we can constrain governments through constitutional constraints. I've been working on labor market reforms, educational reforms, growth policies, many different areas. And the puzzle has been with me. How can we promote these good ideas? That seems to be very hard. Can we formalize a theory on how to do these kind of things? And uh, this is not unique, of course, for Sweden. I think this country faced very similar challenges. This was argued by Reagan some 30 years ago, that it's a lot easier, of course, to cut taxes, you know that today, of course, than to cut costs. And governmental policies, expenditures tend to stick. They're hard to get rid of. So the puzzle here, the great puzzle, I think, is how can we promote liberalization? How can we decrease the size of government? So I'm not basically concerned on what to do. I think we know that most of the time. But how can we promote these reforms? And is it possible? to formulate what I call a general theory of reform, modern statecraft. So this is what I'm going to talk about today. So I will present a theory with three different parts that will evolve slowly through this lecture. So modern statecraft, that's the art. It's not a science. It's an art of governing an advanced democracy and welfare state well. And it's about implementing welfare-enhancing reforms. And by reforms here, I don't mean extending expenditure, having more subsidies, welfare systems, regulations, privileges, and so on implemented. But it's about taking away these kind of things, because that's the challenges most of our societies face. And. Uh, this is a question of what we call, may, may call liberal statecraft, now, making society more free. So um, I have surveyed the theory of institutional change. I've looked through how other scholars have looked at this. But I've also done an extended case study of two countries. And this may seem surprising to you, but both Sweden and Australia over a period of 25, 30 years have had a sustained process of liberalizations. Taxes have been cut, regulations, red tape has been cut down, the size of government has been decreased, actually. It's been such a dramatic shift that both of these countries can be said to have changed their social models. The Swedish welfare state is something very different today compared to how it looked in the 70s and 80s. 
Australia, quite a different story. Very protectionist society. Lots of regulations in the business sectors. Also transform themselves into a very cosmopolitan, open society with low trade barriers. So the question is, how did they do it? What can we learn from how they did it, not only what they did? And it's important to realize that both of these countries, just like this country, faced enormous barriers to reform. There's always a very strong status quo bias in, in advanced democracies and welfare states. And I find three kinds of barriers that are extremely important. The first one concerns special interests of different kinds. And that's something that grows over time, of course, in advanced democracy and welfare state. Lots of people become dependent on, on welfare and subsidies and regulations and so on. And they defend them fiercely. You get caught in what may be called the public goods traps. It's very hard to take away these benefits. People will lose in the short term. It's hard to promote long-term liberalization, liberal reforms. The other barrier is, I think, perhaps even more fundamental. That concerns cognitive frames, mental frames, ideologies, if you want. What is considered a good society? Uh, here, ideas are very important, of course. How you look on the world. You get stuck, in a sense, in an idea trap. The third hurdle is what I here call public opinion. Media logic, of course, but also the cost of saying that the emperor is naked. There's a lot of preference falsification going on where people don't dare to say the private truths because public lies are upheld over time. And I argue that liberal reforms promoting the overall welfare through taking away all these regulations and subsidies is especially important and difficult because they face a public choice, sorry, a collective goods dilemma here. So, despite these hurdles, both of these countries, as I argued, managed to implement very substantial reforms. At the early stages here, you can see that the increased economic freedom on a substantial level. And they kept these levels. It started to decrease a little bit in the end. But this doesn't capture the whole picture. If we start with Sweden, this is a list of different reforms taking place over a period of 25 years, starting in the mid-1980s, where the Swedish famous welfare state had all kinds of problems. We had huge deficits, we have stagflation and everything. And a period of reform started. And as you see, there are tax reforms, there are pension reforms, there are budget reforms requiring a surplus over the circle, balanced budgets, all kinds of privatizations took place, deregulations, red tapes were cut down. And uh, this continued up until 2010. Then somehow the process ended, and I can, will come back to this. This is an example. Sweden still has a very big welfare state, still have very big taxes. But this is something that, for example, Reagan did not achieve. 
actually public expenditures were cut down, tax shares of GDP fell, the number of public employees fell over this period. Quite dramatic from a Swedish perspective. This trend of increasing public expenditure were cut. Also, coming back to these pictures, it's important to notice that minority governments dominated this period. Only one period had, had a majority government. Also, for 17 out of these 25 years, the Social Democrats were in power. So you have left-wing politicians implementing liberal reforms. How did that happen? Australia, a very different starting point, as I said. Very protectionist society. Wages were set in arbitration courts, centralized system, based on what a male bread earner needed to support his family. So a labor government, for 12 years, John Howard, Paul Keating here, started to implement liberal reforms. Also privatizations, microeconomic reforms, labor market reforms, pensions reforms, bringing down wage setting to the firm level. After 12 years, John Howard took over, a national liberal politician, and he continued the process for another 12 years, making Australia, as I said, a very successful open society, cosmopolitan. They didn't even have a downturn during 2008. Virtually no public debt. That's true for both countries. This is an example of what happened in Australia. As I said, all kinds of subsidies, protectionist measures, protected industry in, in Australia. But step by step, all these trade barriers were taken down and Australia was, became an open competitive society. So the question is, of course, how did they do it? So the first part of this new theory I developed, I call the reform circle. And this is um, applicable, I think, to the whole process itself over the 25 years, but also to the individual reforms. It starts out with the change in economic social conditions. It could be pays for white-collar workers. Do they have real wage increases? It could be increasing public debt. It could be globalization that threatens, you know, industry or the jobs in, in the economy. These, that needs to be interpreted by ideas, new ideas. So ideas is actually the most important thing in this. But ideas by themselves, policy ideas on how to handle these problems, these challenges, also need some kind of agency. And this is where policy entrepreneurs come in. Without policy entrepreneurs, Ideas by themselves doesn't do the job. Ideas are available to anyone, really. You can copy them, you can steal them, you can develop old ideas, but unless you have people promoting them, think tanks, policy entrepreneurs, others, nothing will happen. But that's not enough either. You also need, of course, power resources of different kinds to put behind these ideas. And that's what takes us down to the end of the circle where you have 
parliaments, Congress, and all these kind of politicians, which is actually only the lower part of this circle, which in turn, if they manage to promote reforms, will again change economic social conditions. So you have this circle going here. And all the links are essential here. To get a bit deeper into, I think, the most, two most important parts here. The first part concerns the ideas. These are the most important things for reforms, to develop these new ideas that actually enhance welfare, actually promote liberty. And it's important to realize that ideas can be two different things. It can be causal beliefs about how the reality works. Is market good? Is planning good? What kind of policies work in order to promote what you want to achieve? But it's also about normative ideas, of course, values, and so on. And research is very clear that it's a lot easier to change worldviews, beliefs, about policy instruments, for example. Is capital taxes, marginal taxes, the rates, is that a thing? Or should you have a totally different policy instrument, taking away, for example, a wealth tax or an inheritance tax, as we did in Sweden, in order to promote a better society? But it's even harder to promote the fundamental values, the ideas behind the social model. So the challenge here, of course, is to change the fundamental policy paradigm. If you can do that, you will become very successful in the long run. The policy entrepreneurs are the agents here that really makes the circle go around. And what they do, they develop and articulate these ideas. Sometimes they borrow the ideas from the outside, but also you develop the ideas yourself. And this is very important. It's not enough to be one single policy entrepreneur. It's important to form a coalition with others, uh, promote the, the ideas and the policies, proposals from different perspectives, what's called advocacy policy coalitions. Also, policy entrepreneurs, of course, use different strategies. And that's my second contribution, I think, in this book. I developed three kinds of reform strategies, quite different ones, but they're all necessary to promote reforms. And the first one I call Popperian reform strategies. That's what people usually think about when they think they want to promote reforms. Rational argumentation, new facts, new research, and so, and so on, in order to promote your ideas. And Karl Popper, as you know, famous social scientist, political philosopher, the open society and its enemies, fighting Marxism for a long time. He was also a defender of what was called peaceful social, social engineering, small incremental reforms in order to avoid very major policy mistakes. So this is important, but even more important is what I call Conian strategy. Thomas Kohn, famous writer of Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he introduces the concept of paradigm shifts. So usually you have normal science, but if you want to really change into revolutionary science, changing how you look at the world, you have to use other kinds of strategies. Rational argumentation is not enough. Really striking facts, narratives, framing, and so on is what matters. 
So this is even more fundamental to change. Thirdly, Niccolo Machiavelli, as you know, on the author of The Prince. This turned out to be very important in all three countries. This is strategies that promote shrewdness, of course. Uh, blame avoidance, blaming your enemies for having caused problems, forcing yourself to do the good things. Extremely important. Uh, indexing things, masking your changing, the lying consequences when you cut costs, when you take away benefits. Splitting the opposition, playing one player against another. And this occurred, I think, in both countries, very much on the labor side of the governments. So the Social Democrats, when they reformed the Swedish welfare state in a beneficial direction, they used these kind of strategies most of the time. This has some high cost, I think, in the end. But they won, uh, in the short run at least, elections by using these kind of policies because they worked. So, uh, I will give two examples here. Uh, this is an example where Swedish, the Swedish business sector turned itself into a very forceful policy entrepreneur. I think this may be kind of unique internationally. So, they transformed themselves from being part of the corporate system, being supportive of the social welfare model with the social democrats, into a fierce critic of that model, arguing that we should cut down taxes, we should deregulate things. And this was triggered by a very devious scheme called the Swedish Wage Earners Funds that was introduced in the mid-1970s. In practice, it would have meant the socialization of Swedish industry. So the top business people became the chairman, CEO, top of the Wallenberg family in Sweden. And over a period of 15, 20 years, they promoted large-scale pro-market campaigns, basically, supporting think tanks, mobilization of their own members, having hockey stars, popular figures, you know, in campaigns on buses, on television, everywhere starting radio stations, private universities even, in order to promote reform. And it succeeded, but it took 15 years. This, I think, was essential to the liberalization of Sweden. So this is a very Conian strategy, very pro-market rather than pro-business, as you usually see from the business sector. The second example is the Swedish tax reform implemented by the Social Democrats in the early 1990s. This is a more, a bigger reform than the Reagan's reforms or Thatcher's, Thatcher's reforms. It involves a larger share of GDP of, of the changes made. The ideas originally came from the Liberal Party in the Swedish Parliament, but it, the idea was taken over by the Social Democrats. And uh, in coalition with the Liberal Party, they implemented this very radical change of the Swedish tax system lowering marginal rates, taking, taking away all kinds of deductions, making the system a lot more beneficial, actually, for society. And I think the Machiavellian strategies here dominated, even though all kinds of popperian strategies with governmental investigations, 
draconian strategies, framing things in a different way, actually saying that the old system was very unfair, uh, also made it into a success. So we have these two parts, the reform cycle and uh, the reform strategies. The third part of, of my theory is triggered by these two questions. Strategies are developed. They're open to all kinds of actors. The leftist, the conservatives, the people who don't want to have pro-market liberal reforms. So how was it possible that the destructive policy entrepreneurs didn't take over the process? How was the collective action problem involved in promoting liberal reforms achieved? So I develop a theory partly based on Eleanor Ostrom's work, uh, which I call experiential, experiential learning. So some ideas, of course, they were taken over from other countries. Thatcher, Reagan were important to both countries. Milton Friedman, Hayek was important to both countries, inspiring both sides of the political spectrum. But it also started you know, to develop their own policy ideas in a learning process. And uh, that in itself became very important. So public discussions, open debates, free media, all this turned out to be extremely important to sustain the process. All kinds of idea conflicts were debated openly in public, and that enforced, I think, the, the reform process. And that's very important, you know, reflect the observations of examples of your own experiences, but also an openness to develop new ideas and also to stick with good reforms once they have been implemented by your opponents, even though you've been against them, because you realize they're improving your society, making welfare higher in your society. This process took place in what I called, inspired by Edward Childs and others, the central zone. This is essentially a top-down process that goes on. So the central zone, where you may call it polycentric, this is where Ellen Ostrom came in. A polycentric system with different actors having different perspectives, some of them coming from inside politics, some of them coming from outside, being economists, poly entrepreneurs from different, from the labor unions, from different squares of society, promoted to this learning process. And uh, it's not the establishment, to speak Washington's talk here, it's a more open process. And in a sense, this central zone were developed by the actors themselves. As I said, the Swedish industry sector promoted new think tanks, promoted academics, and so on, that contributed to this process. But in the end, you have this actors in the central zone promoting the ideas, and that's what made it decisive. Elections were won in the end later because the system delivered increased welfare, increased liberty, but the ideas themselves, the reforms themselves, 
were developed and implemented within the central zone. So that's um, basically the story. There was also an element that you had to have a critical mass of people like people in this room, I think, who were devoted to liberal ideas. Think tanks, academics who really were pro-market. That's what was necessary in order to handle this collective action problem that I mentioned. So this is my last slide. Uh, the theory has three parts. The reform cycle with the ideas, the policy entrepreneurs, the power resources that shifted the, the policies themselves, the, the uh, reform strategies, and also the experiential learning. So that's what made the reform process sustain over a period, but also that was necessary in order to promote individual reforms in the process. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Nils. I will introduce now my colleague, John Samples, who will provide a few minutes of comments. He is a vice president here at the Cato Institute. He founded and directs Cato Center for Representative Government. And uh, in that center, uh, he's in charge of all of our work on uh, the First Amendment and uh, free speech and public opinion uh, work. He is the author of The Struggle to Limit Government, A Modern Political History, and The Fallacy of Campaign Finance. Before coming to Cato, he was a director of Georgetown University Press and also a vice president at the 20th Century Fund. Please help me welcome John. So Ian doesn't know the danger of saying a few minutes. I will, I will go on. You'll just stop me at some point by grabbing me, presumably. Um, Thanks very much. Let me say that this is a book I can recommend to you. Absolutely. The book is excellent. It is well-researched, unlike so many books uh, that you get from academic publishers or written by uh, professors. It, is, it makes good on the promise of interdisciplinary work. Most people are caught in their own silos. This book is not. It, it uh, roves freely across to uh, disciplines for ideas. And it's a thoughtful book. It's actually the book I wish I had written when I wrote The Struggle to Limit Government in the United States, uh, because it, it tries to get to a larger uh, understanding of these matters. I mean, I, there, there's a, something of a critique of it. I mean, there is, in a sense, a public choice critique, because anybody that is a sort of, as Hayek said, we're all secondhand merchants and ideas and to recommend that ideas are the thing that matter most about uh, liberal reform is to be, to be sort of pleading one's own case. But you know, you certainly hope it's true. I'd like to think it's true. It's difficult on a day-to-day -day basis here in DC, as you may know, to believe that. Um, so I don't really have much in the way of criticisms. I'll say some things going through this. What I want to do is to try to extend or at least suggest in some ways how this uh, framework and these ideas might apply to the United States. Now, immediately, there's some objections to that that come to mind. What is the difference, in other words, between uh, the case studies of uh, Sweden and Australia and the United States, and why might these theories from these case studies not apply to the United States? Well, first of all, there's the sheer size. You're talking of uh, countries of tens of millions, the United States is over 300 million. Um, 
So that's an obvious thing. I think also the other big thing in terms of government role is the role of defense and the military sector in the United States. Uh, the United States, uh, you know, has a very large one. Uh, and you have to say, just recently, I was reminded of this in the, uh, the uh, budget negotiations that went on and the spending, ultimate spending that came down. Remember, what broke the spending loose, essentially, was the Republican desire for more defense spending, a kind of constituency of the Republican Party. And so it matters not just that the state is making war and failing to win or whatever, but also that this has budgetary implications in terms of the size of government. Obviously, there's also different institutions. There are, I would guess, more veto points in the United States uh, government. Uh, which makes it harder to reform and also harder also to cause the problems that need reform. And finally, I would say, and uh, I would just mention this in passing because I'm not certain, uh, some time ago there was a, part of this story of liberal reform is one of deregulation. Uh, at the time of the American deregulation, I'm going to mention in a few minutes, um, the economist Samuel Peltzman said, because uh, deregulation works against public choice theories. Public choice suggests that you're going to get a lot of bad regulation, and it's just going to continue because it's hard to get rid of it politically. Uh, then you had deregulation in the United States. So Peltzman raised the question, well, how could this happen? His answer was that the rents in regulation, that is what people, these uh, firms were getting out of it, uh, or workers were getting out of the regulation had been exhausted. So I don't know if that's part of this story, but it's one part that I, I would have liked to have seen treated in here. Now, let me see if I can apply this in some measure to the United States. Uh, first of all, I would say I have a kind of pet theory here about the United States, and I'm not sure how widely that applies either, but that there's been in the United States two kinds of crises right? Crises is very important to Professor Carlson's book. It's sort of the motivation. You can see why it would be a motivation for liberal reform or any other kinds of innovations, because it demands some response. In the United States, I would say there have been two different kinds of crises. One, a crisis of the regime, and second, a crisis of reform. Let me explain what I mean by that. A crisis of regime is one in which things develop in such that the response to the crisis fundamentally changes the nature of the institutions of the society. By that measure, in the United States, I think there have been three kinds of crises of the regime. The original one in the 1780s, the dangers of a military coup, the problems of the, the government led to the original constitution of 1789. The second one uh, in 1860, primarily on the issue of slavery and other issues. And then finally, the third crisis uh, was in the 1930 to 45 period uh, and is generally associated with uh, the Great Contraction, as Milton Friedman put it, and the Second World War. Uh, so all of, in each of these periods, the, the institutions of the society changed in important ways to understand uh, thinking about the United States, I think you need to talk a little bit about the 1930s. Um, on a by, uh, byway remark, I would also say that it's interesting to me that each of these crises of the regime is about 70 years or so apart. So when you think about that, and if you think about uh, the um, 
New Deal being somewhere in the mid-30s or so, or something like that, because it's a long period of war and depression, uh, and you add 70 years to it, you come down in the 2005-2010 period, which in American history, by this way of cutting things up, you're kind of overdue for a, a crisis of the regime. So the 1930s gives us, uh, in Professor Carlson's point of view, a, um, a, ch a Cunian change, a lot of a change in expectations from, about government, a change in lots of institutions, change in framing of government during the, a long 15-year period of, from the uh, 1930 to 1945. Above all, on the domestic side, it comes to be by 1939, the idea that government is responsible and capable of uh, stabilizing the economy and producing consistent economic growth. That becomes the major purpose of government in many respects. And note also that for reasons that many of us would not think had much to do with the government, but at the end of the crisis of the New Deal era, you do get a period of strong growth that lasts almost uh, 20 years, from 47 to 75, uh, 65, really, and uh, rising productivity till 1975. Also, in this period, you get security measures, that is, personal security, social se what we call social security, pensions provided by the government, and then later, of course, health care, both for older people and for poor people. And the other thing that I would mention again about the United States that's different, what comes out of this period is a kind of international dominance. It requires a standing army that requires uh, large budgetary outlays, but it creates the expectation that the United States will be a dominant player in, and uh, on the domestic side and internationally perhaps creates the expectation that the United States will provide order. This is the world we live in to a large degree now, which leads me to the conclusion that the crisis of the 1970s was not a crisis of the regime in the United States, but rather a crisis of, of, that reformed the regime. It was a crisis of reform. And yet there was indeed problems uh, uh, that happened in the 1970s, of course. Um, the military dominance, in a way, was the first to come into, uh, into clarity. Uh, the failure in Vietnam and a general kind of, uh, that in some ways uh, remains. I mean, you compare Vietnam and Korea to what came after, it was um, a beginning of an era of restraint in that regard, although not generally speaking. But of course, the one we remember that was most discussed uh, about the problems of American government in the 1970s is what might be called, the, the came to a head in about 1978. High inflation, high unemployment together, contrary to the predictions of the Phillips curve, which was one of the underlying ideas about managing growth in the economy, that policymakers could, could select a choice between uh, some kind of trade-off between inflation and employment. It was a workable trade-off. And then the, over time, they could manage the economy. When, by 1978, you have several years of not only the economy performing poorly, but the Keynesian economists, the dominant elite, the central zone, if you wish, of that period, don't really seem to know what to do. If you lived during that period, many of you will remember the sense it wasn't just that things were bad, it's that no one seemed to know what to do, and 
the traditional ways you have been taught in uh, school that about how the world had changed and how um, the, you know, the president and his economic advisors could make everything better all seemed to be undermined. So you had a general loss of confidence in policy elites in the, cent the central zone, as it were. Um, and so this leads to what I would see as a 20-year cycle of really kind of reforms, not things that change the regime, but really reform it in important ways. First of all, in 1978, you get deregulation. This fits uh, Professor Carlson's view, which I think is interesting in Sweden and Australia, is the opposition, the party you come to associate with economic liberalism to some degree, uh, is not the, uh, they, they adopt the reforms. In this case, in the United States, the reforms come from the Democrats first. Jimmy Carter and uh, his uh, uh, people who advise him, uh, and Ted Kennedy, it's now perhaps forgotten, uh, supported a widespread deregulation, airline deregulation, trucking deregulation, and so on. Uh, the more, so that's vital and uh, fairly persistent over time. Uh, then the better known, of course, is the tax cutting of uh, 1981 in the Reagan administration. Uh, but you also see, particularly in the first two to three years of the Reagan administration, you see unprecedented restraint on spending. Uh, you saw real uh, cuts in a lot of areas. It's true you only saw the, the eradication of one program, but you did have real restraint early on. But over the course of the entire eight years of the Reagan administration, essentially you see spending starting to rise again. However, it's um, not well known that the Reagan administration in 1978, when they were the Reagan campaign, uh, Marty Anderson and others decided that the per the goal here, and this makes it a reform institution in a way, the Reagan as a reformer, the goal is simply to maintain or cut, perhaps cut, uh, spending as a percentage of GDP. It's not to have real cuts in spending or to reduce the size of government except with regard to GNP. So the idea was you could deal with inflation, you could uh, have some spending constraints, you could get the economy going, and that at the end of the day, the percentage of GDP taken by the government would be lower. And on this measure, by 1988, the uh, Reagan administration, in fact, succeeds. And in general, one can say that in that period, up until uh, the uh, September 11th, that basically you're talking about a plateau in spending levels for the federal government as a percentage of GDP, okay? Uh, more uh, interestingly, also in terms of reform, you get a tax reform in 1986, uh, supported by both parties, but suggesting, again, these taxes are used as a management tr uh, a tool by Congress, allegedly, that there was some loss of confidence that we'd be better off without that. Uh, and then the following over into this era of reform, you have welfare, welfare reform, uh, kind of a constraints in that in 1996, again, supported by both parties, although in some ways Bill Clinton was drag kicking and screaming. At the same time, you do have the rhetoric of agreement, the era big government is dead and that sort of thing. And even Clinton's rhetoric going into the 92 election suggested that things were going pretty well for the liberal reform project. 
Um, you can also say in general during this period in the 90s, spending moderates, but it's largely because of defense spending. The, one of the things about the American example is really the, in the post-1945 uh, era, the only budget line item that has shown a lot of variation downward and upward is defense spending. A lot of the rest of it is very stable. But in spending in the 1990s, in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War, drops significantly, and both parties support that. So that, that counts. Now, let's talk about liberal reform failure during this period. And I want to use some of the concepts, I think, to try to understand that. Um, it can be described as any, uh, a failure to reform in any serious way the entitlement state. And in fact, the entitlement state enters in the 1980s has a serious bout of uh, a crisis, right? Uh, the Social Security system in 1983 is identified as being within a few months of having to take money from the general treasury, which is something they don't want to do. Uh, and what the result of it, the response to it of the Reagan administration is not some idea that's particularly liberal. It's uh, that is privatization or possible part partial privatization. Rather, it's a commission, and the commission comes back with uh, cutting spending uh, on Social Security and raising taxes now and cutting spending about 25 years later, which is sort of what you would expect from the system. Although, as I get closer to retirement, I think, boy, that was 16 months of, of, uh, of uh, benefits that I would have gotten had it not been for the Greenspan Commission. But this was the response, basically. It was a very reformist response, and I would count that as a failure. Um, and second, Medicare, even more so. Medicare it had already had, within you know, 10 years of being created, Medicare, the health care uh, program, uh, had had a crisis in the 1970s of funding, and then it had a serious crisis of spending in the 1983 period, and the Reagan administration responded with price controls, basically, which have continued more or less in various ways. What you don't see here, and this, I think, sort of puts an uh, uh, emphasis on Professor Carlson's emphasis on ideas, is the New Deal uh, system was so dominant for so long that it really was hard to generate. I mean, the Social Security ideas of Cato are really start out around 1981, 82 or so. So you don't have a fully-fledged idea about what, what is the options when you have a crisis in Social Security, and even more so in Medicare, right? So with Medicare, it's just clear. You just, you just the idea is make it go away by, by government gr grabbing spending. Um, so you had an underdeveloped set of ideas, I think, is part of the answer. Uh, the other problem is that you had had this long period of growth, and both Social Security and Medicare were expected uh, had, had grown in popularity because, particularly Social Security, it had been returning above average uh, returns, as it were. Even though there was no market mechanism, people were getting a great deal out of it, a good deal out of it. Um, and so the crisis wasn't like that. It was really hard to attack it. Um, in terms of what successes there were, I think there was a Machiavellian element that Reagan made very easy in the sense the obscurity of the system has been emphasized, the American system. That is, one of the reasons it's argued Reagan was able to do more than Thatcher in cutting in some ways was because it was hard to figure out who exactly was cutting programs that people didn't want to have cut it. 
Uh, I think the uh, tax reform was somewhat like that too, although the tax reform benefited by being a surprise to people. I would say there's a couple of Cunian points, that is the framing, the changing in the American system. And I think this is, despite all the problems we have, uh, if you were alive in 1965, 1970, or 1975, you will recognize that we live on the other side of the changes Reagan brought, which was, in 1975, uh, the free market, free market ideas. Remember uh, 1965, Hayek is referred to as sort of a right-wing nut, right? The ideas we think of as legitimate now are thought by uh, many people as legitimate, not just libertarians or conservatives were thought of as just so outside that it was obvious the government was going to control everything in the future. So Reagan brings that about, and that is, I think, has lasted in many ways. But Reagan has another change that is important to the liberal reform process itself that is talked about in Professor Carlson's book, which is, I think he and the people that were with him looked back at previous uh, resistance to the American welfare and administrative state they looked in the 1930s, and they looked at Barry Goldwater. And in those times, people complained that the government is taking away our liberty. And in both times, they got their clock cleaned, right? No, you didn't win in the New Deal, and Barry Goldwater, for other reasons, perhaps, you could argue, but still, he didn't come close to winning. Reagan recognizes that liberty to be politically successful has to be instrumental. That is, it has to be instrumental to solving the crisis he was in, the crisis of economic growth and so on. Um, so a, a second crisis that is, uh, is, I would talk about briefly here, that is also part of this, you would have to say, but it, it's not clear whether this is a crisis of reform or a crisis of the regime, is the 2008 financial crisis, which comes along with also the crisis of failure in Iraq and Afghanistan. The American system there, in, in a way, is, and it leads to political changes, obviously, crisis in financial markets. You do see in the following some moderation in the global crusade to try to, to change countries through invasion. Uh, you see more regulation of financial markets, so that's still somewhat unwinding. Uh, but you see stability with regard to open trade and other things. What I, I, I would say, actually, that this crisis is interesting because I date the end of the Reagan era to 1997. And that is, I do that because in 1997, you got the first of the budget-busting, government-expansive healthcare programs, the S-CHIP program, uh, which the, both parties agreed to. Uh, in 19, uh, 2003, you get Medicare Part D, which was also uh, unprecedented, and that was so Obamacare in 2010 is actually about a 10 to 15 year period. It's the culmination of a great expansion of the health care programs. Uh, you, so, um, in, in that sense, I think uh, it's, very, it's very difficult to say where we are in history. We did have a crisis. It's 10 years in the past. Where are we now? I think one thing you can say definitely about the post, uh, and this, I think, perhaps fits within the, his examples of Sweden and Australia. I'm not clear about the monetary authorities. I'll try. The, uh, which is that the, um, the Fed 
was the primary responder to the financial crisis in 2008. The Fed was in many ways the primary economic policymaker in the years down to now. The unwinding of their position is, is a concern. Uh, we can also say, I think, that it's almost as if we've entered a period now of pure Machiavellianism, right, in which you have populism from the leaders, but on the, underneath the leaders, the, the experiential learning, the central zone, the policy elites are actually acting in somewhat libertarian ways. So that strikes me as a very unstable system that can't continue. It's hard to imagine, for example, if Bernie Sanders becomes a populist of the left and wins in 2020, that underneath it, it will be able to contend sort of center-left technocratic stuff that uh, democratic elites would adopt liberalism. I have some more questions, but uh, our host today will not uh, permit me to continue. And perhaps in the discussion, we can bring up some more of this. Thanks very much. It's a great book. It really is. Sure, sure. Thanks very much. Nils, if you want to say something. Is it on? No, it's on. Yes, uh, thank you so much for your, your comments. Um, Professor Samples, um, highly interesting. Um, it seems to me that um, both your 70-year cycles, Now this is a bit shaky. 
what's happening with the WTO and so on. It seems to get harder and harder to implement these welfare increasing policies, not only in this country, but actually in most countries. And that's like a backlash, I think, uh, idea-wise. Uh, it, it's a backlash to policies that actually failed, you know, in the 30s, and, and the Keynesian policies failed for, for a long time. And, and some good people worked on good ideas and good policies that managed to change that. So now we're in a very unstable situation where I think the emphasis should be on ideas and policy development. Thanks very much. Well, we have time for questions. If anybody has a question, please raise your hand. And if I call on you, identify yourself and your affiliation, uh, please w wait for the microphone. Uh, we'll take it, that question there in the corner. Could you put the microphone up to your mouth, please? Thank you. Turned on? Yeah. How's that? Good. Got it? Yeah. I have a question uh, for uh, Professor Carlson. Uh, I'm Ern Reynolds, a lawyer in private practice, and what I was looking for, hoping to see, uh, was uh, what Mr. Samples made quick reference to, that is, um, uh, he, he started talking about a framework before he got to other things. It seemed to me, particularly your last slide, showed an awful lot of people spinning their wheels. Uh, you gave examples from Australia and from Sweden, and everybody was spinning their wheels, but nobody seems to have a scaffold or a framework on which to build a model from all that incremental activity. And my concern is, I don't think the U.S. Constitution, great as it is, is that scaffold or framework to build the new reforms for um, the, uh, in essence, governance of, governance of large, complex systems that we'd like to have. Shall I try to answer? Thank you very much for your, your comment. Um, as, as Professor Samples mentioned, the o U.S. constitutions have lots of veto points, and that makes it both you know, harder to, to do bad things, you know. Uh, it's not possible in this country to expand a welfare state as we did in Sweden in the 60s and 70s. Um, and you should be happy about that. But uh, the bad policies that you manage to implement is very hard to get rid of, you know, because all kinds of interests can block reforms. You know? So, so uh, I agree, it's, it's harder in the sense to, to promote good reforms in this country. Uh, but, 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 but I think we're back to the basic idea here that what you really need to develop is a policy paradigm, an idea framework that captures the direction you want to go and what should be done in order to promote those basic values and, and beliefs that are essential to make America a better society. If you do that, as Reagan did and some other people have been doing in other countries, I think it's, it is possible to promote reform here as well, but without such an idea framework. And I don't, we, I don't think we have invested enough energy and resources into developing these frameworks in a new world, globalized world, a world that looks a bit different compared to the 70s and, and 60s and so on. So that job has to be done. 
and, and both on a fundamental level, but also on a more policy-oriented level. That takes time to develop. So I would uh, answer the question, per, I hope, uh, usefully by saying it seems to me the question is these ideas we have, and we try to generate more, what is the relationship between ideas and policy making? What, and therefore, what is the relationship or should be between ideas and um, political uh, elements? What I get from Professor Carlson's book is that the idea generators, the politicians, and uh, are all in one community. They have a pretty good relationship with one another. And even the politics itself uh, is easily all brought together. Here, in the, you know, particularly on the liberal side, that is the libertarian side of things, what I notice is about half the people w want to be involved and half the people are so uh, dismayed and uh, despise politics really as an enterprise that they want distance from the whole system rather than an engagement. Uh, I, th I would see the question is what kind of productive engagement can uh, libertarians have and that would be your scaffolding. It's not clear from previous liberal reform elements. I mean, the great thing was you know, Marty Anderson knows Ronald Reagan and, and generates his policy reforms, and then they politically work. Ed Crane goes to see George W. Bush and gets the uh, privatizing Social Security on the, uh, it didn't work, but he got it on the agenda. Uh, that would seem to me to be how we do this, and, and uh, answering that question is a tough one, particularly when the politicians in question are often going to be anti-libertarian, at least in rhetoric. Right? That's the thing I forgot to mention that you alluded to. The current president ran as an anti-libertarian, generally speaking. He's not governing that way, thank goodness, but he did. So it's, it's hard to actually have effects in that. Well, with the lack of a framework, when you read Thomas Kuhn, he is completely vacant and never mentions markets. Mm. And so I have a hard time trying to fit Kuhn into uh, what the professor is proposing. Okay. Any other, any other questions? You know, uh, p policy entrepreneurs can have bad ideas as well as good ideas, or ideas that y that you and I might uh, disagree with. And um, uh, how does your theory explain the rise of populism in wealthy countries? Today. That's an issue that I've taken a lot of interest in and uh, organized a meeting with the Montpelier Society here in Stockholm this fall, actually. And, and my basic you know, explanation from the framework I, I developed in this book is that I think the good people have uh, left an idea vacuum, you know. So, so uh, if we don't have the ideas that really are productive in the sense that they are able to solve the current problems that our societies have. And in Europe, it's a lot about immigration, it's a lot about unemployment for the youth and so on. Well, the bad guys may win the, the idea battle, and, and that's what populism is about. So in the longer run, these ideas, populist side of governments that we see all over Europe, and I think was very influential in the uh, presidential election here in the U.S. is very anti-liberal, uh, anti-pluralist society, anti-free courts, anti-free press, and so on. 
which in the end will destroy, I think, uh, beneficial reforms and also the essential public dialogue that is so essential to really have this experiential learning that I discussed. So, so populism is, uh, at least in Europe, I think the major threat to, to liberal reforms. Socialism creeps, creeps up all the time, of course. There's still a overbelief in, in the role of government and so on, but, but the same ideas creep up from, from the other side of the political spectrum, actually. So I, the, I think I would say is that a lot depends on who's uh, in power and, and therefore gets blamed for a crisis. I don't, oh. I don't know how far you can generalize. Think about 2008. So you have a twofold crisis. One is a kind of foreign policy uh, crisis that's connected to Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. You know, it's evident who's uh, took responsibility and gets the blame for that. That was the Bush administration. That was their conception of the world. So that's part one. Then the financial crisis happens, and you get a re brief recession after that, fairly brief recession. But the financial crisis is held almost at the same time as the uh, election. And so you get uh, there's a kind of strict liability in politics, right? So Bush and what he, Bush wasn't a particularly libertarian Republican at all, but uh, everybody that would, could be a, he, he did uh, propose the Social Security privatization, so he got blamed for that too, particularly when he lost the election. Then you have a president who has come to do, deal with the crisis, and her, they're going to have a dominant voice. And I think these ideas are always out there, and this these crucial turning points actually make a big difference about whether the good guys or the bad guys. Uh, it could have been, if you'd had a Republican president in 76, that you might have had wage and price controls in 1980 or something, right? But, uh, because the, uh, if you'd done the liberalism a little bit earlier and it hadn't worked, you would have been blamed for the problems. Any other questions? Does does uh, does change always require crisis? I think there's some overbelief in, in crises. <laughs> uh, if you take Sweden in, in the early 1990s, it looked like Portugal or or Greece or something. Today, we had a huge budget deficit. We had public expenditures of over 70% of GDP. We had interest rates of 500%. Uh, I mean, an enormous financial budgetary crisis. And, and what made it possible for us to solve those problems was that we had invested in ideas. We had policy entrepreneurs who were active before the crisis really hit us. You know, uh, If we wouldn't have had that, if liberal statecraft did not exist, we would have ended up like Portugal or Greece. And this is what happens all the time in Latin America, for example. This is what happens in most societies. So it's, it's essential, you know, I think liberals never win, in a sense. And, and, and uh, we have to fight this up, uphill battle all the time because, you know, uh, Cognitive frames and so on are always in favor of more government, in a sense, to solve problems. And, and um, I think, you know, uh, there are crises all the time. 
In Europe, we've had this migration crisis now, and that opportunity has not been taken by, by the good guys, you know, in order to promote good reforms, because it was more or less decided that we shouldn't discuss this immigration problem. We should have done that, and we should have de developed good policies for how to handle this. Instead, the bad guys took over, and, and the populism had an uprise that we haven't seen since the 1930s, you know, in Europe. So it, it's actually highly problematic. Yeah, I would uh, agree and disagree. And I was just thinking uh, on the role of ideas. Imagine that if instead of what was thought in 1935 or whatever by Franklin Roosevelt and others, they had actually had, say, Milton Friedman's understanding of the role of monetary authorities and you know, problems in the economy. Uh, they were casting about. They simply had no, they had some ideas left over from progressivism and everything. But in a way, it's a hoping for the look back at the time you need the knowledge, right? That's one thing. I would say on the crisis, it may be here where is where the United States is different. And it goes back to this question of veto points, right? You To make the system work, you have to have multiple uh, votes on ways of doing things. And uh, so you have to have a, a situation in which people can't really deny that there has to be some change and that it has to be done, right? Now, having said that, the other thing I would say is, uh, and perhaps um, I would have seen, I was surprised at this the book from the American perspective, which is, in a way, the way we solve the crisis is by you know, relying on the Federal Reserve, right? In the crisis of 2008, you had this sort of uh, incompetence or Congress didn't want to take responsibility. The executive and the Fed did something and then did a bunch of other stuff that we may yet regret, I will admit that. But it was a unified response to that. So you could actually get not just bad policies, but bad institutions out of it in a way in the American context. If I add some Australian examples, I mean, people don't know that much about Australia, but it's a highly fascinating case, actually. So they had all these high you know, trade barriers, tariffs and everything. And the paradox occurred that the tariff board, the agency, governmental agency, who was set to control these tariffs and to measure the consequences of them, became an anti-tariff agency. So they started to produce reports saying that actually these tariffs are disastrous. They hurts Australian economy, it hurts Australian consumers. So, so a government, very paradoxical. I mean, the political parties didn't have any ideas. Instead, a governmental agency, in a sense, took the lead to promote pro-market liberal ideas. And, and in a sense, you may say that, that uh, at least in the short run, the Fed did a similar thing here. Uh, you may argue that they saved the system in a sense, uh, at least didn't end up in Armageddon or something. But in the longer run, of, of course, the politicians have to get in there and, and solve the problems that these short-term measures ha will create you know, in the longer run. You may think that there is something paradoxical about government agencies leading a liberal reform, but it, even in the United States, it's not that. Uh, there's at least one example I can think of, which was the tax reform 
1986 began life as the work of Treasury, experts high up in Treasury, and this was glommed onto by both parties, Bill Bradley on the Democratic side, and then ultimately President Reagan. But it as a policy issue, it began. And that's very similar to the Australian and Swedish case. Very few, few number of economists promoted these ideas, and that became policy a few years later. Actually. So we, we need more libertarians in the federal government. That's well, I think we have time for one concluding question, if anybody has one. If not, I'll ask you, are you, given your theory and uh, your knowledge of the experience of successfully reforming countries, are you optimistic about any particular country or set of countries today? And if so, which ones? Let me point out the weakness of my theory. Uh, it's been developed by using two successful examples. Uh, I choose Australia and Sweden because they had been successful in implementing pro-market liberal reforms. I could have chosen Israel, very interesting case. I could have chosen Canada, in fact, very interesting case who also for a prolonged period of time actually implemented very good liberalizing reforms. In order to really you know, test the theory, I should have had um, Argentina, I should have had Portugal perhaps, Greece, some other countries to, to see whether in fact these things that I mentioned are important were lacking in these countries. Uh, I think still that that um, from my more more not not a steep knowledge of some other countries, I think it's true. Uh, I think that the the, the theory is valid, you know, and and um, I'm uh, kind of optimistic that that um, there's always some countries that moves forward, and I think the countries that I mentioned that has been successful may be able to, to do the same thing again. Uh, I think I see signs in Sweden that, uh, that uh, even though the process stopped in 2010 because of lack of good ideas, because of lack of liberal statecraft, I think we will see, we will see a revival of these kind of ideas. And there's a lot of policy failures that need to be fixed also in these countries. Well, one thing I've learned from following countries for many years now in terms of reform is that it's almost impossible to predict which countries are going to be the ones that uh, end up successfully advocating reforms, even if you're very well informed about what's going on in a, a lot of countries. There's just too many, too many factors that are unpredictable. And so that was kind of a, a, a trick question, but uh, okay, you passed the, the test. Thanks very much for joining us uh, today, uh, for everyone for coming and for writing this book and uh, providing comments to to both of our panelists, please join me in thanking them and join us upstairs for an informal luncheon. Thank you.